Hey everyone, here is another Patreon preview. This is part 5 of our Unions and the Mob second series about the International Longshoremen's Association. And here we're getting into what happened mostly in the 60s. And uh, there's, I don't know, a bunch of really interesting stories that go on throughout this era. And if you want the full thing, become a patron at patreon.com slash workstoppage. Uh, It's the only way that we get any money for this, and so we appreciate it if you'd support us in that way. Otherwise, you can uh, jump at the Discord, message one of the admins, and we'll hook you up with our, you know, overtime stuff. But, you know, in that case, you know, make sure to share our stuff because that makes uh, more people find it, and it's more likely that others will be able to support us. Anyway, uh, here's a preview of the episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Solidarity. And so the ILA entered the 1960s as still the dominant labor organization in control of labor on the East Coast docks, despite all the attacks from the AFL, the federal government, the mafia, the shipping associations. They had survived mob infiltration. They survived state investigation and receivership. They survived raids and takeover attempts by the AFL, repeated lawsuits, absurd red baiting from the AFL and labor press, and internal strife between numerous split factions within the union. But now they're facing a threat that's more powerful than any of their prior crises, these structural changes in the nature of dock work itself. You know, as automation and containerization gets rolled out in the 60s, the demand for labor on New York's piers began to decline precipitously. And the impact of these structural changes would send the ILA leadership scrambling to protect jobs enough to hold off the militant discontent of the rank and file. And... This is one of the things that's so frustrating about these negotiations and the lack of union democracy within the ILA. Because compared to so many other industries, the ILA more or less had a closed shop on the East Coast. And there are a lot of other industries, even back in the 60s when the labor movement was much stronger, that would have killed to have that level of organization, even if there's almost no mobilization and there's not a lot of actual engagement with the rank and file. And if they had had union democracy, if they could have done a better job of harnessing the rank and file energy, it's a counterfactual. We can never prove any of that stuff. But, you know, I I just, you wonder how much better of a a contract they could have won and how there's some level of job loss with this sort of technology that's inevitable. But, you know, the, the decline in job numbers didn't have to be as precipitous and it didn't have to have affected workers as harsh as it did. The only thing about what you just said, and I, I agree, is like we got to be careful with saying that uh, the unions would have killed for something in a in a series like this one. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I'm just joking. And so you know, because this is one of those things. Like ILA members at this time, they only made slightly above the average of blue collar wages. And, and so, you know, the fact they're making above average blue collar wages is one of those things that points to like, even when your union has had some shitty leadership, it's still almost always better to have a union than to not have one. And so this is just one of those things where like the confusing and dare I say dialectical relationship <laughs> between the militant members of the ILA fighting for union democracy and the union leadership that they opposed during attacks from both the AFL and the state was described by radical dock worker Gus Johnson, who said, quote, We had a pretty good relationship with the union leadership, even though we would criticize them in union meetings. We were always principled about outside intromission, like the FBI or the Waterfront Commission. We did not want anything to do with them. We felt it was the men who had to change the situation in the union. End quote. And 
you know, I think it's really interesting to see that because I think it's one of those things where, you know, understanding how shitty, you know, under King Joe Ryan things had been, I think people might be surprised to hear that from, from, uh, you know, again, self-described radicals, but it's one of those things where obviously these workers are fighting fiercely and sometimes physically <laughs> uh, for democracy within the union and the ability to be able to hold the leadership to account they critically recognize that the fight couldn't be won if the union was dominated by an outside force like the capitalist state. Yeah, no color revolutions in our union, please. <laughs> no, exactly. And so, you know, despite this, you know, kind of on again, off again relationship where, you know, on the one hand, the militants are understandably railing against the leadership for not being democratic, but on the other hand, defending them against attacks from outside influence. But with the re-entry of the ILA into the AFL in 1959 and the end of raids from other unions, the fight for union democracy against the existing leadership returned to the forefront for radicals within the ILA. Radicals advocating for a strike during the 1962 negotiations found themselves on the receiving end of an intimidation campaign. Doc organizer Frank DiLorenzo told William Mello in New York Longshoremen Class and Power on the Docks, quote, The local leadership tried to intimidate us. They would put stooges on the piers to try to find out who was leading the movement. I remember one time a union leader came down with one of the mob guys and called the leaders on the pier to find out who were the guys causing the work stoppage, end quote. And so in addition to continuing the use of physical intimidation and goons, which again is one of those things where the Waterfront Commission is supposedly there to keep that from happening, and yet... It seems to continue to be really good at screening socialists off the waterfront, but not these guys. <laughs> Weird. Hmm. It seems like maybe the purpose was, you know, in part to do that, but also really more so to stop the union from being able to effectively fight the uh, the, carri- the the shipping carriers. Well, yeah, it's like, sure, they were screening out goons, but who's goons? They're still letting plenty of right. goons in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And... And so the leadership under uh, tugboat captain William Bradley, who had taken over for Ryan, uh, was, un- was not averse to red baiting just as Ryan had. Uh, attacking those agitating for a strike in 1962, local 1814 president and mafia associate Anthony Scotto said, quote, Wildcat strikes are outlawed in Brooklyn. They are not necessary. They are not permitted. No one will touch this beef until you go back to work. Then, but only then, your officers will negotiate for you. And then also singling out the militants at the communist-backed paper Dockers News, he said, quote, There has never been any mystery about the purpose of the real loyalty of Dockers News. Since its very first issue, its only interest has been to stir dissension, to manufacture grievances, to attack the ILA leadership. No one was fooled. The Made in Moscow label was too transparent. End quote. <laughs> One thing I love about uh, Mafia Associates is that they really did talk like that. Like, yeah. the Made in Moscow label was too transparent. Me and the boys <laughs> saw right through it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's one of those things that I always think is so funny because, like, we see this, like, so many times uh, with, with red baiting during this period where it's always like yeah no they're all just outside agitators they're just making up these grievances they're not real real dock workers don't think about any of those things and that's why only 18,000 people participated in the wildcat strike (laughs) (laughs) like 
it's just it's all it's it's just so galling, you know, whenever you see this stuff when it's just clearly wrong. Because of course, sometimes, you know, there are periods where like the militants in the union were marginalized and, and some of their critiques didn't necessarily resonate. But during this period, there's so many wildcat strikes with thousands and thousands of workers out there. This idea that's like no one was fooled by their fate grievances, <laughs> like, okay, man. <laughs> Material reality seems to disagree with you, but all right. <laughs> um and so in, during the 1962 negotiations, led by uh, Teddy Gleason, the lead organizer at this point, automation was once again the main point of contention because it hadn't been resolved in the previous contracts. And, while, and we're really starting to see at this point a real impact of automation because while prior years had seen over 40 million man hours of work on the New York docks, automation dropped this precipitously in just a few short years all the way down to 30.8 million a decline of 25% in just a few years. That's and huge. Em- yeah, and employment on the docks by this point had already dropped by over 5,000 jobs. And the union sought to offset the loss of jobs caused by containerization with programs like a shorter workday, so like the 30-hour work week where workers work six-hour shifts instead of eight. Uh, they also tried things like a guaranteed annual income because, again, while you have the, you know, the Waterfront Commission has a hiring hall instead of the shape up, you know, they were still, it's still a semi-casual form of employment because the there's all the shippers who are just like, well, I have work today and I have work next week and then I don't have any more ships coming in for like a month or whatever. And so it, it's one of, there's still a lot of, job insecurity, and especially as containerization starts to cut into the jobs, that becomes one of the key things that workers are fighting for. And one of the other aspects that they tried to apply in order to deal with these, you know, the ravages of automation is lowering the age of retirement because, you know, that then you can have folks just retire with attrition. And of course, that doesn't help you with the size of the overall job force. But the earlier retirement allows you know, some of those job losses to hurt less because it's Mm -hmm. rather than workers losing their livelihood, it's they just get to retire early, which is cool. Everybody wants to retire early. (laughs) Of course, unsurprisingly, the owners didn't just say, oh yeah, no, that sounds great. (laughs) They they balked and mobbed up Brooklyn local leader, Tony Anastasia, uh, decided to try and just screw over the whole rest of the ILA and undercut the negotiations and sign a business-friendly deal specifically for the Brooklyn docks in order to keep business moving and to keep his mob boss uh, friend's money rolling in. Uh, Even the rest of the business unionist leadership in the ILA was like, what the fuck, (laughs) when he broke unity like that, and he was ejected from the negotiating committee by the rest of the union leadership. That's that's good, at least. You know, it it shows a, a slight turn away from that, like, you know... Uh, just giving in to whatever the you know the mo- these more mobbed up figures are are doing because there were, most of the time before it was just the rank and file fighting back against them. Yeah, that's one of the, I think the things that is like critically different between the period of Ryan's control of the union and then the year the couple of decades that follow because you while of course there's no increase in union democracy which sucks you have a lot more of almost like a split between like the, the few leaders like Tony Anastasia, like Tony Scotto, like at least Tony's. Um, and then you have the other folks who aren't necessarily mobbed up and maybe they're more friendly with the shippers than they should be. But a lot of times it's more just like your standard conservative business unionism where it's, 
It's not what we would want for a militant, you know, class struggle unionism, but it's also not necessarily entirely corrupt or anything. It's just your bog standard service unionism. So there's that tension there within the leadership during this period. And, and so after uh, ejecting Anastasia for his attempt to break ranks, uh, Unfortunately, the NYSA did not break ranks. The shippers held unity, refused to negotiate because they knew that thanks to Taft-Hartley, they could use the government to shut down any strike. And once again, in 1962, when 75,000 workers walked off the East Coast ports, President Kennedy now invoked Taft-Hartley to block the strike for 80 days. Oh, come on, all you workers who toil night and day. By hand and by brain To earn your pay Who for centuries all passed For no more than your bread Have bled for your countries And counted your dead We're the first ones to starve We're the first ones to die The first ones in line For that pie in the sky And we're always the last When the cream is shed out for the worker is working when the fat cat's about. In the factories and mills, shipyards and mines, we've often been told to keep up with the times. For our skills are not needed. They've streamlined the job with slide rule and stopwatch. Our pride they have robbed. We're the first ones to starve. We're the first ones to die. The first ones in line for that pie in the sky. And we're always the last. When the cream is shed out for the worker is working when the fat cats about and when the sky darkens and the prospect is war who's given a gun and then pushed to the fore and expected to die for the land of our birth though we've never owned one lousy handful of earth we're the first ones to starve We're the first ones to die, the first ones in line for that pie in the sky. And we're always the last when the cream is shed out for the worker is working when the fat cat's about. And all of these things the worker has done from tilling the fields to carrying the gun we've been yoked to the plow since time first began and always expected to carry the can we're the first ones to starve we're the first ones to die the first ones in line for that pie in the sky and we're always the last When the cream is shed out for the worker is working When the fat cat's about We're the first ones to starve We're the first ones to die The first ones in line for that pie in the sky And we're always the last When the cream is shed out for the worker is working When the fat Cats about.